This is Derek Wolf, just your average privileged white guy, being open-minded and learning, and I thought someone else might want to learn too. This is a show centered around social issues where each episode I listen to someone's story in the search of the truth. On today's episode, I interview my friend, Fred. Fred's black, and there's a lot of misconceptions out there, especially by white people. So I asked Fred about him and his family and his story to add context to the mess of the social issues between blacks and whites. So here's my friend, Fred. I was born and raised in Mobile, Alabama, uh, on the Gulf Coast. Uh, Mobile is probably a town of about 200,000 people. They call it the City of Five Flags, so it's rich in history. So City of Five Flags means we're under Spanish rule, the United States, Britain. Uh, I'm going uh, taking a loss right now on some of the others and the Confederacy. And I bought, yeah, I know one of them would have been. <laughs> I was going to help you out with that one. Yeah, one would have been the Confederacy. Um, and so what's cool about Mobile, it's less like the rest of the state of Alabama and more like New Orleans. You know, in fact, uh, we had the first uh, known Mardi Gras on record mm. and New Orleans picked it up from us. So that's always our claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> so um, grew up uh, primarily with my mother. Uh, my parents divorced when I was really young and my grandfather was a very strong force in my life. So I spent a great deal of time with them uh, on in summers and after school and that sort of thing. So you know, having a single mom, um, you know, and then, you know, like I said, spending time with my grandmother, my grandmother and grandfather, you know, very deeply religious people and spiritual mm. people. Um, Southern Baptist? Uh, not Southern Baptist, Missionary Baptist. Missionary, okay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about that a little bit more in we'll difference between yep. Missionary Baptist and Southern Baptist. I don't know if they would have been too welcome uh, back in the Southern Baptist sure. uh, arena. Uh, given the time frame, um, they were both born in um, near and around Marion, Alabama, uh, in Greene County, Alabama. Uh, my grandfather was born in 1914 and my grandmother was born in 1916. Uh, so you can imagine some of the history and some of the stories and struggles that they experienced, uh, you know, through the Jim Crow South and just how they were able to grow and thrive is really encouraging to me and inspiration for me and the mm. rest of my family. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad yeah, you take strength from that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and so when your childhood, you, would you say that you had a pretty normal childhood as far as, like, what was your socioeconomic status? Sure. Um, so, you know, having grandparents, the highest education they had was a high school uh, degree. And as you and I both know, wealth is generational. Mm, sure. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they both had high school uh, diplomas. However, they were very well-read people. And one of the things that stands out to me about their home, it was small, very neatly, you know, maintained. Um, they had a ton of books all over the place, mm. all over, you know, various topics, you name it. And they were always reading something and stayed abreast of, of current affairs, uh, particularly because my grandfather was somewhat involved. Well, not somewhat. He was involved in the civil rights and uh, doing civics duties um, in and around Mobile uh, during that time. Um, he was a leader in the church and um, he, like I said, did things in the community. And so because he pushed 
for equality within, you know, just basic services and things and supporting the the neighborhood, uh, he received pushback mm-hmm. uh, from from the powers in Mobile uh, to the point where that my family had to leave the house because of a bomb threat that was called into my my grandparents' place. And my mother was a child at the time, so they um, had to leave in the night because of that. Wow. So, and my mother is only 20 years older than me. So that should give you some perspective of that really wasn't that long ago. ago. You know, we see these things in black and white pictures, you know, on TV. and We just think, you know, that's ancient history. No, it's not. Mm. (laughs) So that should really give you an idea of, yes, we made some strides in a very short period of time. However, that was not that long ago. You know, you can change laws, but, you know, I have to ask, how long does it change? How long does it take to change hearts and minds? Sure. Yeah, a long time. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, back to your question about socioeconomic. Hey, you know, I never missed a meal. Um, My mother, uh, she went on to get her master's degree in education. Uh, She was a school teacher. And so I looked up to her uh, as far as a motivator for striving for education and just moving the ball forward. And, you know, that was just the pride that we had within our family. You know, my grandfather set a standard for us and a foundation. And so we were the launching pads off of that foundation Mm -hmm. that he set up for us. Yeah. So, I, you know, the things that I hear what you're saying is that um, your family had uh, some struggles, but... They overcame those through their um, determination and uh, really to educate themselves. You know, you're talking about books and um, just that they were on top of things politically. And so it was a, uh, your family looked out for themselves. Um, and, you know, I think that's interesting because, um, you know, I, I wanted to ask, like, would you say you had a normal childhood? You know, what what's normal? But, you know, I, what I'm concerned with is that too many people think that uh, black people have um, broken um, families and that they aren't educated or don't push education and, uh, you know, don't want to work hard. So, you know, everything that you've just told me is, you know, counter to that argument. And, uh, uh, you know, I just think that's important that that story is told. So look, let's stop. Let's talk a little bit about this and really just some of the misconceptions regarding the black family. In order to do that, we really need to go back to 1965 and talk about the Moyahan Report, which was written by an American politician. Now, this report was written to persuade White House officials that civil rights legislation alone would not provide racial equality. The report went on to say that we have, in quote, racist virus in American bloodstream. But because the report was focused on the black family, Really, that's what people got out of it, was the idea that there was this moral decline and blamed the black family for their struggles. Because at that time, 25% of African-American births were out of wedlock. In 2019, 70% of African-American births are out of wedlock. But they would want us to believe that this is somehow black women's fault or a black man's fault. It's just the idea that it has to be two parents or even the idea that it has to be of different genders. Again, you can argue that these numbers are high but I'm here to say that there's been no moral decline. Why do I say that? Well, here, let's talk a little bit more about that. You can look on the CDC website and you can see that the number of black married women has experienced slow growth over time. 
1970, while the number of black single mothers grew exponentially. So that really inflates that statistic. But the other side of it is, the actual birth rates of black single mothers declined and has been declining since 1970. And married black women are having fewer kids, once again, skewing those numbers. But this isn't something that is only exclusive to black families. There are four million more white children in single parent homes in the United States. And let's talk about the birth rate of whites and blacks. Unmarried white birth rate has declined in the last 20 years of 11%, while the birth rate decline in the last 20 years of blacks is 26%. And since 1970, it's been a 60% decline. So there are fewer single mothers having children. I noticed a Statista website had a stat, and it showed the number of black single mother families grew from 1990 to 2019 from 3,430 to 4,147. This is a 20% increase. But it doesn't talk about the fact that the population during that time grew over 56%, more than double, almost triple. All while, black single parent families have been digging themselves out of poverty. In 1990, 48% of black single parents lived in poverty. In 2019, only 27% live in poverty. And I've seen the stats that show how single parent families are related to crime and lack of education, but none of those studies or reports ever adjust for income, educational support, school resources, or even home environment. Black women and black men and black families are not the problem. These people need resources and they need support. What kids need is a supportive home, a loving home, and a home where they can get support for their education. It has nothing to do with a single parent. All right, let's get back to Fred. One of the things that you taught me uh, is that black people are not a monolith. <laughs> and that, you know, and that, that in, in, and really it was that we were at the park one day and you said uh, some uh, juvenile back that thing up came on and I started twerking and Lisa started twerking. And I looked at you and you were just sitting there and you looked at me and you said, do you think rap, rap is part of my culture? And I was like, I was puzzled, and and you responded, uh, "Well, is country part of your culture?" Uh, well, well, no. Uh, so, um, what do you think about the fact that that I think there is this issue with white people that think that blacks are a monolith? So I think it just goes to not understanding or want to take to the time to understand. Um, something that's different from you or something that you had to not give humanity to, to justify your treatment of mm -hmm. those people. Um, and we're going to get deep real fast. I yeah. said, we just went from my family, <laughs> just getting right into. <laughs> so, so uh, let's, let's take it there. Yeah. All right. Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator. He himself uh, said in a debate with Douglas that um, he didn't believe that blacks were equal and will ever be equal. This is the great emancipator that we revere. As a matter of fact, he met with five black leaders not too long after the uh, signing of the uh, Emancipation Proclamation to say, okay, guys, because of you, we had this war. And he went on to proceed to blame the, blame, blame the blacks in America, the 12 million blacks that were enslaved there. He blamed them for the division within the country. 
because they were fighting over them. He had already found some land in Latin America and was saying, okay, we're going to get you guys out of here now just for the sake of the preservation of the Union. What do you do with that? So throughout American history, you have this dehumanization of the black man in America. And it goes, to, in my opinion, to it asks the question, well, what does it mean to be white? How do you justify your whiteness? What does it mean to be white? Race is a, is a construct that's new within the 18th and 19th century. So in the original papers that were drawn to be a citizen within the United States, you just had to be white, a white Anglo-Saxon, mm -hmm. which was separate from Slavics. Jews and Celts. But then you had this growing population of brown people. You had Native Americans, blacks, what have you. And then you added, so then the rules changed. So we need numbers now. So then Slavs, Jews, Celts were added to the list of Anglo-Saxons. So therefore you have the concept of whiteness now. And so there's this constant bar moving of what defines humanity Mm -hmm. That just keeps happening over and over again to justify, quite honestly, financial and maintaining financial structures and social structures. Even with the European Enlightenment, when um, when uh, Charles Darwin started categorizing things and started, um, you know, that was just the scientific approach. We took everything and then we um, categorized it, put it in boxes. That was also done to humanity as well, and so we did it, and so we started seeing the signs of nephrology or, and I'm sorry, nephro, nep, nephrology, phrenology. Phrenology is the study of the shape of the head. And so you went, so they would go say, well, Africans, they have this shape of the head. So that means that they're inferior. And so mm. the science became such that it justified the inferiority. Sure. And so that's what you see. You see an ignoring of the humanity of blacks in the United States and the justification of not being recognized. Well, you know, they needed to be enslaved. You know, uh, Christians are even on record of saying, well, it was God's will that they were enslaved sure. so that we can give yeah. them Jesus, yeah, right? We know, we know Christianity had a big part of slavery in the South. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm sure we'll unpack that as well. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's amazing. And um, I call it pretzeling, right? You know, we contort ourselves to justify these notions and things that support our current way of life. You know, the Bible says, well, we're made in God's image. But the way we behave as a people and a society, we make God in our image every day. Now, quite often with governments and things of that nature, you see a political um, thing happen, and then it quickly becomes God's will that this particular thing happen. You're like, wait a minute, what just happened? <laughs> sure, sure. They, they're looking for an excuse. Correct. So that's a long answer to, to your question of why, why do I think that whites look at blacks as a monolith? It's because it's easy and expedient. It's lazy thinking. It's lazy thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all have paradigms. We all have these little schemas, right? 
you know, the human brain only has so much right. processing the, the, power. Our brain, you're exactly right. Our right. brain is trying to categorize, trying to box. That way, when I see this again, I can make a quicker reaction. I won't have to think about it nearly as much, you know, because I, I want to think about other stuff. So Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. like routines. It's, yeah. it's algorithms, right? Uh, I'm driving down the street. A cop pulls up behind me. I get both hands on the steering wheel. My cheeks clench. <laughs> you know so it, everybody has their response a white person may see a group of black teens uh you know and all of a sudden you know they're trying to make sure that they're in a well-lit area they go to the other side of the road we all have those schemas we all have prejudices there's you know regardless of who you are you brought up the um the police sure so um what what has been your experience with the police? Uh, not positive. Um, so let's you know we're, I'm gonna keep bringing things back. We have sure, to go back yeah, to the let, roots I think on it's a, important to know the context and the history. So uh, yeah, let's get into it, Fred. Sure. Now I know you and my wife have been reading a book. Uh, what's the name of the book? Uh, about the police? End of Policing by Alex Vital. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Ron has been sharing some of those things with me, and we've had some really good conversations. Um, and we talk about policing, uh, the history of it rather, is that, uh, they were slave patrols in the South and their job, their duty was to ensure that, you know, blacks were accounted for. They were off the plantations. If they were, they had the paperwork in order and that sort of thing. And so then the notion of law and order they evolved mm-hmm. into law and order, you know, instead of community policing, it became law and order. Well, it's not serve and protect. It's not serve and protect, not at all. And so what's order? Social order. Mm. What are you doing on this side of town after this particular time? You know, you've heard of sundown towns where they've had some very crudely written signs that use some very colorful language, language that said, you know, don't let the sun set on you, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're not responsible for what happens to you. you I'm know? glad you're able to say that and laugh. I couldn't I couldn't do that. Well, that's why blacks uh you, you guys take, have made it. I mean, we, you <laughs> got to have a sense of humor through this, right? Yeah. Um but it's you laugh to not cry sure. quite often it's because a cover. it's hard. It's a cover. It's, it's a cover. Yeah. Especially when your your son who um wouldn't hurt a fly who just started driving a couple of years ago has already been pulled over and let go for no reason at all. Sure. I believe it. So, I mean, I can tell you stories. I've been stopped numerous times in Franklin and Brentwood. Ask me how many tickets I've gotten. How many tickets have you gotten, Fred? None. Mm. I'd like to talk a little bit more in depth about this, about police interaction. You might think, well, they let him go. And my thought is, well, then why did they pull him over? And I guess you say, well, how do you know it's racially motivated? Stanford did a study where they looked at 95 million traffic stops using 21 state agencies and 35 municipalities from 2011 to 2018. And using this massive database, they looked at times when people were pulled over at 7 p.m. and on months before and after daylight savings. And they were able to see each day as it got darker less likely a black driver would be stopped. And the reverse was true when the sky was lighter. This study became known as the veil of darkness. 
And ultimately what they said about the study was that police stops and search decisions suffer from persistent racial bias. The study also found that blacks and Hispanics cars were searched more too. And they were three times more likely for a police officer to remove their weapon from a holster. But again, you're gonna say, well, he let him go. Well, that's the broken window policing or proactive policing. There's a theory that by targeting these minor crimes of vandalism, loitering, jaywalking, fare evasion, that they can deter more serious crime. And it's all about punitive enforcement, which really the research is mixed on its effectiveness. In fact, it can be harmful. A study done back in 2017 looked at high schoolers and whether or not they committed more crime after being in contact with law enforcement. What they wanted to do was figure out, are these cops making things worse? So they looked at these high schoolers. They were all black and Latino boys, ninth and 10th grades. And they interviewed them at six months, 12 months, and 18 months later. And during that time, they'd asked them, how many times did a police officer stop and talk to you? Or did you commit a crime in this time frame? What they found in this study was that contact with law enforcement predicts increases in black and Latinos' adolescents' self-reported criminal behaviors at that six, 12, and 18 months later. And they related this to the psychological distress. And the younger a boy was stopped, the stronger these relationships became. These findings raise policy questions about the influence of proactive policing on the trajectory of children. And the interesting thing is 55% of the kids in this study came from married families. So mm, that's interesting. Those are the things that the black community quite often has to deal with. Um, and it's a shame. It takes a nine minute video of somebody kneeling on the back of somebody's neck casually mm. for the country. In fact, the world to realize that, hmm, maybe there's a problem. So it's not quite often all the time black lives matter. Well, the problem is black voices aren't heard. Sure. They're ignored. And things typically don't happen until whites realize what's going on and they mm. start to move. You know, i never forget a conversation I had with the white lady I used to work with. And she was saying, oh, I bet you're uh, excited about Martin Luther King Day coming up. And it's a black holiday. I'm sure you're excited. And it was so heartbreaking to, to hear it. I wasn't angry. I was sad for her. Mm. And it was the fact that Martin Luther King was try, trying to convince white people of black people's humanity. Mm. And that has always been the argument. At first it started out as, you know, is slavery just or unjust? But the argument has always been, are you equal to me? Right. Should I even consider you a human being? Right. First, even, even yeah. a human being, are you equal to me? Just Again. because slavery ended, it did not mean people were equal. Exactly. Yeah. Again, the great emancipator yeah. said, uh, you're not equal to me. And he also said, and I'm paraphrasing, you don't have to go home, but you got to get the hell out of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, another quote, and, and I can't paraphrase it, but it was something, and we're talking about Lincoln, uh, mm -hmm. something along the lines of if he could somehow keep the country together and uh, not 
abolish slavery, he he would have done it. So you know, it was for for Lincoln, it was about um, preserving the Union. It wasn't about um, ending slavery. However, for the South, I think we all know what their intentions were, and you know, you mentioned earlier um, BLM, mm-hmm. and and you know what, Fred, I need to be honest with you. You know, I think it was. Probably the um, the the George Floyd killing that 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 nine minutes that really shook me. I think there were some other things that were going on, in, um, you know, uh, but that 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 really did wake me up because I was not the uh, the supporter of BLM. I wouldn't say that I was against them, but um, you know, I, I didn't understand. Um, and you know, a lot of people I think don't understand. They say all lives matter. What? do the all lives matter crowd what are they missing sure and let me take a step back and from the comment that i made about black lives matter anybody that's listening i want them to understand that i do support the movement um they absolutely serve a purpose it's not the only way to get things done but it is a way and i absolutely stand behind what they're doing so i wanted to get that part out out of the way first um all lives matter it's tone deaf there's no other way to put it. It is absolutely tone deaf. It says, nothing to see here. There's really not a problem. Yes, all lives matter. Then why am I like eight times more likely to get killed by police? And then we start what we referred to before. We start contorting and pretzeling. Well, he should have complied. Well, he should have done this. Look at Philando Castile, and I can't remember exactly where he was. This young man was in the car with his girl, and he had his baby daughter in the car. And the policeman pulled him over. I can't remember what it was for. He was a licensed gun carry um, Mm. um, holder. He reached to show the policeman his carry permit. He shot him several times in front of his baby daughter and his girl. You can watch. You can pull up the video and watch it. It's horrific. It's so bad. The baby daughter starts consoling the mother saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Card-carrying member, right, of, you know, having his permit. Where was the NRA? Sure. Dead silent. They didn't say a word because they support the police that we just said before maintains what? Law and social order. Yeah. Yeah. So let's address some of these misconceptions regarding police brutality. I think one misconception is that it's about crime and that these people somehow had to come into them. But that's just not the case. Looking at the largest 50 cities in the United States showed no correlation between the levels of crime and police killing ratios. In fact, most police killings begin with traffic stops, mental health checks, domestic disturbances, or low-level offenses. And while police killings are decreasing in cities, they're increasing in suburb and rural areas. Police kill black people at higher rates than white people in 47 of these 50 largest cities. And the highest police killing rates per state are New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Alaska. But what's confusing is you can look at two very similar cities with similar populations, similar percentage of people of color, similar violent crime rates. And you look at who was killed between 2013 and 2016. Buffalo, New York 
had zero police killings while Orlando, Florida had 13 during the same time frame. And I know a lot of people talk about police reform. But reading in The End of Policing by Alex Batali, he addressed diversity and showed that while blacks make up 13% of the population, they also make up 12% of our police force nationwide. And he stated multiple studies that show that black officers have no effect and in some cases, black officers are more likely to use force, especially to black civilians. Studies showed body cameras have mixed results with one study showing it even had higher rates of shootings and police receive adequate training. Most go through a police academy, which is six months long, followed by a mentor shadowing period after. But a major issue is lack of accountability. A study looking at police killings from 2013 to 2020 showed that 98.3 of those police killings resulted in no charges. And you may think, well, maybe they were justified. You know, what are the details of those? So let's look at a police report that I'll read to you and see if you can recognize it. The police report starts off with saying a forgery was in progress and that the suspect appeared to be under the influence. Two officers arrived and located the suspect, a male believed to be in his 40s, in his car. He was ordered to step from his car. After he got out, he physically resisted officers. Officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Officers called for an ambulance. He was transported to the medical center by ambulance where he died a short time later. At no time were weapons of any type used by anyone involved in this incident. No officers were injured in this incident. Body-worn cameras were on and activated during this incident. This was sent by John Elder, the director of Office of Police public information under the Minneapolis police. This was the killing of George Floyd, described by police. What would have happened to Derek Chauvin if we did not have bystanders there recording this incident? So back to your question about all lives matter. It's a deflection. Yeah, I think that's it. It's a way to continue to look at blacks and their struggle as a monolith and blame them for their own problems. You know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps mm -hmm. kind of a mentality where you're not getting it because you're working harder. In fact, I'm willing to say, considering the obstacles that have been placed in the way of black people, it's amazing we've made it as far as we have. I would agree with that. Within the United States. Now, I know we have a hell of a long way to go, but good grief. Look how far we've made mm -hmm. it, you know? Yeah, there's somebody always trying to trip you guys up. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm seeing that now, man. All these damn Confederate monuments all over the place. Like, they didn't do a very good job of hiding their racism. Well, and I'm sure we'll dive into that as well with the Confederate <laughs> monuments and when they showed up and why they show up when they, when they, you know, why they showed up when they did. Well, I mean, what do you got? I, I love talking about the Confederate monuments. Sure. Uh, so Confederate monuments, they typically came into being around what, 19, the 1920s? Uh, yeah. Early 1900s. When was their boom? Yeah. The 1920s yeah. was a big boom. Well, well after the civil war. Exactly. So they showed up in the 1920s. They also showed up around the 1950s and the 1960s. Mm -hmm. that's, that's correct. So what was happening around those times? 
Uh, Jim Crow laws. Jim Crow laws have started coming up. And uh, so that was in the, the 20s. The 20s was the KKK. I think yes. that was the rise of the KKK. Jim Crow the- laws started showing up. KKK showed up. Confederate monuments started showing up. Why? To establish the... Um, the lost cause. The lost cause. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. You had the Confederate Daughters of America to thank for that. Yep. And, the, and the push that they had to re- rewrite history. Right. Yeah. Which is the argument that is coming from the right now that 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 the left is trying to rewrite history. But, you know, I, what I'm learning is that the re- history is not being rewritten. I think um, old history is being discovered. Um, people are really looking at what this stuff really was um, and what it stood for. Uh, you know, and, and I think the argument a lot of people have, well, we can't judge them. Uh, by today's standards, but, um, you know, you can look at time back in the early, um, you know, Vermont abolished slavery in 1777. So -hmm. people knew it was wrong for a very long time. But you talk about history, and I love this George Orwell quote. It's from the book 1984. And the quote says, the past was erased. The erasure was forgotten. The lie became the truth. Mm. And so I think that's where we are in American history right now. We're at the point of a reckoning, I think, in this country. Um, I mean, Thomas Jefferson said uh, something to the effect of, and I may be wrong uh, quoting it, so look it up again, but he said something to the effect of, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and is just uh, can't sleep forever. Mm -hmm. So we're at that point now. So you're seeing... uh, People hold on to this ideal and this identity of, the, of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the the American ideal, sure, uh, the yeah. American exceptionalism. Yeah, that yeah, that white, white supremacy, that perfect identity, that the white Christian patriarchal uh, male. Yes, it's a straight lie. male. It's a lie. Yeah, it's all a lie. And so you're seeing laws being passed. You're seeing the shooting down of the 1619 project. You're seeing the shooting down of the critical race theory. It's because the past is being erased. And so anything that push for, pushes forward American exceptionalism or the ideal American, it's being pushed to the side. Why, why do you think it's so hard for us to, to, as a country, to admit our mistakes? I should be asking you that question as a representative of the white, white delegation Lord. today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. You, you ever white people like to uh, let their dogs lick them in the mouth? You ever, that's like a, a white thing that I heard about. Like I've never heard that one before, but that was pretty funny. That's a white thing. Well, um, so let, let's. Sorry. So we talk about racism. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think one question that a lot of white people have is, "Well, can a black person be racist to a white person in America?" Sure. So I think we have to differentiate between prejudice and racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? All right. So both black and white people can be prejudiced. Agreed. Yeah. So I can see you walking down the street. I'm like, look at him. What is he doing in my neighborhood? What is that white boy doing over here? <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Hey, I've been in, in one of those neighborhoods before, and they did question what I was doing. I, and I was like, I'm just delivering food. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, you can have people that just hate 
you know, just for the sake of the way you look, the way you that's that's being prejudiced on some superficial quality that neither one of us has control over. That's the stupid part. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's yeah part of the humility of it. Right. I mean, you see very attractive people that want to be worshipped because they got some good genes or DNA from their parents. It's the same thing. It's silly. You have no control over that. Mm -hmm. There's more genetic diversity in a pack of apes than there is in the entire human race. <laughs> so it, it, it's insane. So where was I going? What were we talking about? We were about? talking about can a black person be, be racist, racist yes, to a white yes, person? Yes, I was going off on tangent. I apologize for that. So, um, so yes, blacks and whites can be prejudiced, right? So racism is a little bit more complicated. Racism involves power structures and systems mm -hmm. to be put in place so that it becomes an ism. It's a practice. It's an ongoing practice. And so it's baked into the DNA of whatever that system is, right? And it just feeds off of itself. So, for instance, the prison industrial complex, right? It was birthed out of the 13th Amendment. Right. 13th Amendment said that, you know, you were free, that, you know, if you you're emancipated. You were free, except if you committed a crime. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, guess what showed up right after that? Vagrancy laws. Vagrancy laws. See, you're a sharp guy. <laughs> <laughs> which which for people listening that that's. Uh, it was a, a law put in place that said that you had to have a job. So if somebody, if you were just walking down the street and they just pulled you over, they could just arrest you just for just for walking down the street. So it was uh, the idea was to you know to bring all the slaves back. Yes, and you had to have to add on to that. They had to have signed a contract within a certain period of time to work with someone. Um. Even after the Emancipation Proclamation, the families were broken up. The relatives of the slaves could not go back and get children that were on a plantation. They, the first right of request came from the plantation owner. So if I had a son that was separated from me that was on a plantation, the uh, the plantation owner had first rights on him to con to have the labor contract. With my son, hmm. even though by birthright he's mine, right? You know, I think the, there's also that that I don't even want to call it an argument, but that thought that um, well, slaves were treated nice, and and I th I think like even in the best case where they're treated nice, their families are being torn apart, and there's nothing that that they can do about it. There's no benevolent slavery, right? I mean, you are know, you? Can you ask a, a female rape victim? Was your rapist kind to you? Didn't he at least take you out to dinner before he raped you? I think there was a, yeah, there was a um an interview I saw where they were questioning. It was a woman her grandmother had had was in, was enslaved and she had had, you know, a dozen children or something like that. And mm -hmm. they were saying, "How do you know she was raped?" And she said, "Well, I know that she only got to keep one of those twelve children." Right. So you know who's going to allow someone. You know, those were not consummate relationships, you know, where they were having a child to to grow a family. It was um, a machine producing. It was a machine. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, look at Thomas Jefferson, the man who wrote in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, owned 600 slaves, mm. and then sired Lord knows how many by uh, slave, the uh, slave Sally uh, Hemings. Is that her name? Oh, I, 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 can't. I need to look that one up. Yeah. Black people listening to this, please don't hold that against me that I forgot her name. <laughs> um, but yes, he sired several children uh by them and there's a there's some really cool documentaries out there about that lineage being recognized by like the jeffersonian society mm. really interesting but anyway back to the prison industrial complex and systemic racism so out of that you have birthed um a you know a pipeline to jails and prison and the introduction of over policing because you need that endless supply of labor mm-hmm so you've just lost this workforce because of the Emancipation Proclamation. So how do you keep that operational cost and your profits, you know, keep the operational costs low and the profits high? And it's through pass the passing of these laws. Right. To keep them enslaved. To keep them enslaved. Exactly. Legally. Exactly. Legally. Legally. Yeah. Quote, unquote. Yeah. 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 It's it, it, the... The, the endless cycle, I mean, it was, you know, they never gave up. And they're not, they still haven't given up. Um, right. You know, um, off topic, but you know, you look at Nashville right now, there's still the bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest in the Capitol building. Sure. Like, w w I mean, we all know who that guy is and what he stood for. So, um, you know, why is that in a place where, where, where government, you know, and, and democracy is supposed to be taking place? To maintain social order. And so it's it's a it's a dog whistle. Know your place. You're coming in here. You may have equal rights on paper, but you need to know your place. And so symbols mean something. I, and I, I, they do, Fred. And that, that I would say most of Americans don't see that and don't realize that. And they because they're not now. You know whether we're all racist or not. We can all discuss that. You know. Um, <laughs> But, you know, we have this, like we were talking about, that in inherent prejudice bias. Sure. Um, and it's whether or not we act on that that makes it, um, you know, racist. And But these these symbols that are around... The, can I these, stop you for a minute? Yeah, yeah. You could say whether you act on it, the lack of acting... Sure. Is, is, can, is just as bad yeah, it's complac as acting. Complacency. complacency. Exactly. Yeah, Sorry yeah. to interrupt, but please yeah, continue. No, yeah, uh, thank you. Um, so I, I, I just... Most people out there would say, hey, I'm not racist, mm -hmm. you know, and, and maybe they aren't, they don't realize it, but there are, and so they assume, I think maybe what white people just assume that they're a monolith, maybe. <laughs> so, you know, and that it's just being overblown, but, you know, why are all these uh, Confederate monuments still standing up all over the place? Um, you know, the Confederate flag, Mississippi just dropped the Confederate flag out of their state flag this year. Sure. Um, you know, Franklin High School down the street from here just dropped the rebel uh, mascot from from their school last year. You right. know, these things are, you know, it, it, I guess you could say it's happening, but it's it's slow and it's still, you know, we were talking about monolith the other uh, earlier. So what do you think about black celebrities or what do you think about Tim Scott? So, you know, I've heard, you know, um, Morgan Freeman, you know, um, Denzel Washington, some of those guys have some opinions that I would say don't align with the majority black community. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, Tyler Perry. Um, okay. You know, so <laughs> what do you, you know, again, you know, I, are, are people looking at the, at blacks like they're a monolith? And so hell, here's this celebrity saying this, so I should take his word for it. So that's a lot to unpack there. Um, so it was, it's funny. You, you asked this question and I, I chuckled to myself because I was asked just out of the blue by an older white gentleman, um, who turned out to obviously be conservative in his leanings and thinkings, just out of the blue, he asked me, he said, so Fred, um, you know, um, what do you think about, gosh, what's the doctor's name? Oh, um, gosh, he was in Trump's cabinet. Oh. I'd... Ben Carson. Okay. Yeah, Ben, ben Carson. 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 Yes. Okay. He said, Fred, what do you think about Ben Carson? And I was like, where the hell did that come from? And so that was his... <laughs> <laughs> And the only thing that I, <laughs> I, I know what he was thinking, right? I, I knew what he was thinking too, but I was sitting there thinking, I was like, should I be angry at this? Should I snap on him? Or should I, <laughs> I was like, so the only way he could connect to me was because he was conservative. I was black. Right. So right. he was going to hand me a black conservative. So he handed me Ben Carson. And so that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, being the person that I am, I, I said, well, I think he's an amazing surgeon. It's amazing how he's. <laughs> I think I thought it was great how he separated those twins. <laughs> Man, you, you tiptoed around that one very, very well. That's... It, it, it would have gone. Well, I wanted to avoid a confrontation. Is what sure, I want to do because yeah, I, you know, he was set in his ways. There was no nothing good was going to come out of that right. conversation, other than he's a great physician. So, <laughs> like like when we've spoken, you you've said to me before, you know, you, you want to have productive dialogue. Sure. So you know, we engage with those people that we can have that with, and yes, and that's and, the very reason yeah. why we're sitting down talking right now. Yeah, yeah, and uh, man, I can't thank you enough. <laughs> no uh, worries. This is, this is great stuff, man. But I I do have some more. If, Sure. If you got some more time. Yeah, but you asked me about uh, Tim Scott. Oh, yeah, and yeah, some, Tim Scott and, and Tyler Perry and... Okay. Yeah. Because um, Tyler Perry just caught some... He caught some backlash over his comments about that we should love all people no matter... And he mentioned the police. Okay. I don't know. Are you familiar with that? Um, it was at a, a recent um, award show. So, do we ask these same questions of Steven Spielberg? Do if I asked you this about Steven Spielberg, or do I ask you about how Italians are portrayed in mafia movies? That conversation never happens, does it? No, no. So why do I have to speak for this particular aspect of the black community? Why do I why am I expected to differentiate that? Because I think again And this is out coming out of love, by the way. <laughs> Because people assume that blacks are a monolith. Sure. So they're assuming that, well, if that guy spoke for black people, then you're a black person. How do you respond back to them? And I guess your answer is, is we're not a monolith. I don't care what that guy says. Exactly. So Tim Scott represents Tim Scott. He represents the Republican Party from what state is he from? South, South Carolina. Carolina. South Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Which has a Confederate flag flying above their capital right now. They have a lot of issues that are still 
left over from the Confederacy. And if he so chooses to ignore those things, that's on Tim Scott. Mm -hmm. And I pity him for ignoring those things and coming out. I, I do not know what, both were political statements, both from Kamala and from Tim Scott. They did the exact same thing. They said that America does not have systemic racism. And it is not a systemic racist country. That is a bald-faced lie. Sure. Yeah, Biden said the same thing. It's a political move. Because yeah. they want to catch the Republicans that they can protect, that they can reach. And because it causes cognitive dissonance to be told that you're racist and you believe that you're not. So it's easier and expedient for me to lie to you to get your vote than to teach you that you are and move beyond that behavior. Mm -hmm. If you have a political goal in mind, what route are you going to take? So what you're seeing are people capitalizing on what's expedient. That's why you see Liz Cheney getting bounced out of the Republican Party so harshly. Right. Because she's kicking against the goads. She's going against what the narrative. Right. She's not going to kiss. I heard the uh, phrasing kiss the ring the other yes. day. You yes. know, And that's, that's what's going on with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, all right. So, well, I, you know, as, I won't as ask as you the, about um, it's all Tyler good. Perry ever again. Uh, you, <laughs> you could ask me about Tyler Perry. <laughs> Sorry, I hate his movies. They, um, I, 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 you just, know, I've never seen. I can't. Uh, I love some slapstick, silly stuff, but man, I couldn't get into him either. So I didn't know if I was racist because of that. So I'm glad to hear you don't like him either. I don't like him. Um, personal, and this is just me. They play into some stereotypical tropes. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Um, Let, you know, you, him well, playing the the sassy, overweight black woman. I mean, that that narrative has been in yeah throughout history. I mean, that's not something. I hadn't thought about that. That's not something that was just, you know, done by us. That's been done for, shoot, man. Do you remember Tom and Jerry cartoons? Yeah, right. You remember Mammy Two Shoes? Mm -hmm. That's the same character, the the loud, boisterous. Now, and when they got into the 90s, they they redid the voice. But man, that was Tom and Jerry Droopy. Those were some of the most racist cartoons. I mean, it's baked into, you can't tell me it's not baked into the DNA of this country. Disney till this day has a catalog of movies that they do not show because Oh, I bet. They, they were racist. I bet. They were so horrible. But Probably anti Semitic to too. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So all that to say that there are tropes that he's playing into that I'm not necessarily a fan fan of. It the plots are predictable to me. Yeah. And it, it just doesn't resonate with me at all. So that's just me speaking as a movie critic who happens to be black. Sure. Um, and speaking as a black person, I'm not necessarily a fan of the tropes and the stereotypes that he's owning and playing into. You know, good for him. He's putting a lot of black people to work in Atlanta. I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he does a lot of good things with the he community. He does some I mean, amazing he seems like a, like a stand-up guy. Absolutely. He's doing some amazing things. But you brought up the, the stereotypes in movies. So yeah. one... I, I'm. Um, movie that I've heard that that has been questioned is um, and a movie I loved, um, Blindside, yep. um, and you know I, I didn't see it at the time, but I guess you know it, can you explain to us why Blindside would be considered I, I don't know a, a negative stereotype to the black community or, or or why did that movie catch some catch some criticism? Um, 
Best way I can describe describe it. Now, I don't know. I saw the movie. I don't know the true story, and I don't know how much is real life versus how much was adapted for the film, you know, and and glossed and polished for the movie. But it follows a narrative. It follows the narrative of the white savior. Mm, white savior, yeah, we should talk about that. Yeah, saving, you know, the black soul. And that has always been a theme underlying um, American culture. And it goes back to just even what we just talked about a few minutes ago with justifying slavery and the justification of, well, if we didn't enslave them, we gave them work. You know, we were able to teach them Christ. We were able to teach them God. Yeah, we, but this know. this is um, a white woman helping a guy uh, who doesn't have a home and help giving him, you know, an opportunity to where he's going into college. And so isn't that a, a really good story? It is a great story. But there are black people that do that for black people as well. And you don't see movies being made. Just like the movie sure, that Michelle right. Pfeiffer made in the 90s, where she goes into the inner city school. How many movies have there been made about the little white lady going into the the rough black inner city school and then she redeems their souls? <laughs> uh, yeah. Honestly. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're... It, again, to you to use an overused word that I mean, it's a trope. It's I a mean, trope, yeah. <laughs> and I thought a, um, a lot about that movie. Uh, you know, there's another movie that um that changed really my perspective on it, The Help. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that an awesome movie. And when I watch it now, it's a, I have a totally different perspective on it. But but Lisa and I were talking about it, and she said what would have been a lot better is if they had done the movie from the, the perspective of the black women in that movie instead of the the movie and just like Blindside, the movie is about well, the white person yes. and the white person's experience with these black people yes. and saving these black people, helping these black people, so we can all have a good feeling at the end of the movie because. White people help black people. Yes. And so it's almost, it's like in the book that you and I shared, White Too Long. Oh, yeah. By Robert Jones. Um, and there was the scene in the book, and it's a, it's a true story. And it's um, the scene in the book where um, they bring this, this white lady that's working in the prisons. You remember this part. She brings the, um, the gentleman to, uh, to church. Oh, in, in the yeah, predominantly yes. white church. Yeah, and he's wearing prison guards. He's wearing prison guards. With a prison guard with him. Yes. With a white prison guard. With yes, him. with a white prison guard and a little white lady. And he goes up to the front of the church and he tells his story about how this little white lady saved his poor black soul. And the church just falls out all over themselves, this, that, and the other. A couple of weeks later, a black kid attends this church. And this is like in the 1960s or so, I believe is what it was. Maybe in ni- late 1950s, maybe early 1960s. Yeah. Black kid attends the church, goes into a, has a lock-in with them. Everybody's having a great time. He attends services at the church and sits in the sanctuary. They lose their minds because this kid attends church and sits there as a free person, untethered, Mm-hmm. With chains, they were afraid that he was going to want to actually join the church. Yeah, right. The elders came together. The elders or came together. They and, had, and a, had meeting. a meeting. Yeah, the kid didn't even want to join the church, <laughs> and they had this huge meeting, uh, you know, and trying to figure out how they're going to keep him from joining. And the the 
what comes out of that story is they felt more comfortable with that black person in his place of being shackled and being redeemed by the white savior than a kid expressing, attempting to claim his equality with them. Mm -hmm. With the same God. With the same God. So we, here we go again with equality. Equality has always been the issue. How dare you think you're equal to me? And I think I will go as far as to say because whiteness is defined by inequality. Mm. I hadn't looked at it that way. I know I looked up the the word perfectionism the other day, and mm-hmm. you know that the word perfectionism has uh, um, some uh, grounding in white supremacy as well as professionalism. Okay. Um. So professionalism. So you know that you have straight hair. Mm-hmm. Um, that you wear a suit, you know, that you have, you speak clear English, sure. you know, these things that are predominantly done by a white male. So, um, yeah, there's all these microaggressions, if you will. Do you, are you, what do you think about microaggressions? Is that something that, that you see on a daily? Sure. Well, the notion that when a black person speaks well, they are, oh, he's just so articulate. That's a microaggression. Yeah. Um, microaggressions come in all shape, shapes and sizes and forms, but they have a cumulative and compounding effect like interest. Sure. I, and if people think, see that they're so small, you know, what's the big deal? Um, right. But if you're doing that every day and, and uh, you know, yeah, you're right. It adds up. There comes a breaking point. And then people wonder why, why is this person, black person so angry? It's because they've been dealing with this particular thing and these microaggressions for Lord knows how long. Mm-hmm. Look at their instances that have made the news recently of uh, high school kids that are in competitions that are having to cut their hair right. to participate. A young lady playing softball or ba- young, young lady playing softball recently, and I can't remember where it was. She had to cut her hair before the match because she had beads hanging from up under her cap. The young man a couple of years ago that was wrestling and on the spot, they took scissors to his dreads and cut them before the match. Now, that's not necessarily a microaggression. Yeah, that's a little strong. To the person, it's not a microaggression. But to blacks witnessing that, yeah, it gets right. It gets old. Well, I know you're talking about hair. There's a, a law called it's called the crown. Okay. Um, that uh, is stripped to protect women in the workplace, black women, or hairstyles. In the back, that, like, I think it's something like one in four women have been sent home um, because of their hair. Yes. Um, at, so there's, um, there's, yeah, those, I mean, you call them micro, but, but damn, if somebody sent me home because of my hair, uh, you, you know, from my job, I think I'd be pretty pissed off about it. Absolutely. I mean, like, and like I said before, microaggressions come in all forms. You have a job interview. And then you're be t- you're you're told, well, you don't have executive presence. You know, you, you yeah. hear little things like that. Well, you're you're pretty well spoken, Fred. You know, don't make me come across this microphone. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not. I was debating, but um, I will ask you this question, and and I, you know, you can pass on it, and I sure. hope I don't offend you. Um, but um, has anybody ever told you the the whitest black man that they've ever met? No. Not at all. Good. We, as a black person in America, 
you have this constant dichotomy. Um, Rhonda, my wife, who's white, she's got to witness the dichotomy and the bilingual sure. nature of our culture here in the United States. Now, we've had our culture stripped from us, but we've cobbled together a culture within the United States that's complex. There are cultures within the black culture. So the way I speak to you is not going to be the exact same way that I come across another black person that I meet. There's going to be a different degree of familiarity that's sure. there because there's a kinsmanship because there's so few of you. There's right. a, there's a, well, there's a common struggle. There's a, com a common yeah. struggle. There's a, Hey, you're all right. You good. You know, there's that checking in. And that's why you see the handshakes. That's why you see the, yeah. you know, you see the hugs because it's a genuine familial. I see you. I feel you. I understand you. Yeah. And so what happens to blacks within a dominant white society, you're not seen and you're not heard. I can't count the number of times I've seen people that I've worked with, gone to school with in the grocery store. They're programmed to not look at black faces when they're not necessarily in a safe space. They look right past you. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Now, they'll see you and if you're at work, they'll absolutely see you. But if you can be standing right next to them and they, they'll look past you. Uh, this is just, some, this it's is my just mind blowing to me. I mean, cause you're just like the most approachable guy, but they see a black person. I, I, I know, man, I, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> they all see I see a you black know? person. They see a black male. And so it takes time to look in their face and to see the humanity, or maybe this is somebody I know. Yeah. You know, I, read uh the autobiography of mlk mm -hmm. jr just i don't know maybe six months ago man and like that book changed me okay and 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 i like one of the first speeches that he does and and um you know when he's trying to they're trying to organize the the carpool and hearing the crowd at this church like roar i mean it it brought me to tears man i just sure. i could just hear it in their voices um you know just the struggle and so I think, you know, if I, to me, this is all about empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's trying to understand that, that my shoes, what, what I've experienced in America isn't the same experience somebody else has had. Uh, and, and it's taken me a long time to realize that. Um, so, but, you know, like things like um, kneeling, the, you know, those protests, you know, um, what, what can you tell us about? Some of the protests, the the riots that we see, the kneeling. What you know, and and I, I would say you know most, a lot of white people are upset about the kneeling. They think it's disrespectful to the flag. <laughs> I have to laugh when I think about that, because of the worship of institutions. Mm -hmm. People be damned, but we're going to worship these symbols, and we keep coming yeah. back to symbols, symbols and yeah. signs and. That's where we draw our power from, is from these symbols and signs that show, that lend to our American exceptionalism. I want to dig a little bit deeper into protesting and what has been the impact. I think the biggest impact has been on police reforms. There's been a ban on tear gas, choke holds, no-knock warrants, and other police tactics. 
there's more cases of police being held accountable. Cities are defunding their police forces, such as in LA, taking $150 million from the police budget and committing it to communities of color. Schools are cutting their ties with police forces in cities such as Minneapolis, Portland, and Oakland. NFL said they were wrong about their kneeling. And NASCAR banned the Confederate flag. Companies have committed to hiring more people of color. And even the show Cops was canceled. So let's look at support for BLM. In 2020, it was 65% following the George Floyd incident. But in 2021, it had dropped to only 50%. So let's look at why. If we look at political affiliation, we can see that Democrats supported BLM in 2020 at 92%, dropping to 88% in 2021, while Republican support in 2020 was 36%, dropping to nearly 16% in 2021. But protesting has never been popular. A 1964 Gallup poll taken just shortly after the Civil Rights Act made the statement, Negroes should stop their demonstrations now that they have made their point even though some of their demands have not been met. 73% of the respondents said Negroes should stop demonstrations, while only 19% said they should continue. A couple years later, in 1966, a Harris survey asked, do you feel the demonstrations by Negroes on civil rights have helped more or hurt more in the advancement of Negro rights? 85% responded that it hurts the Negro rights, while only 15% said it helps. So let's look at some numbers behind these protests. In 2020, between the months of May and June, there were over 7,300 BLM protests across the country. And during that time, anywhere from 15 to 26 million people participated. And of all those protests, 93% of them showed no harm to people or property. But 3% of that harm was done by police to the protesters. So we take that out, it's actually 96.3% had no property damage or police injuries. And if we take out the police injuries, it's a 97.7% no injuries to anyone. While at the same time, the percentage of Republicans that believe the protests are nonviolent is 13%. Let's talk about Francis Scott Key. Okay. Francis Scott Key was a U.S. attorney in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, Francis Scott Key uh, was responsible for the snow riot that took place in Washington, D.C. The snow riot was be happened because it started because he um, arrested him, for had him arrested and tried to convict him for handing out abolitionist leaflets. He targeted abolitionists. He thought slavery was a good institution. In mm -hmm. fact, he come, came from a plantation family that owned uh, a lot of slaves. I'm sitting here looking at my notes right now, trying to find. And Francis Scott Key, he did he write the Star Spangled Banner? Is that yes? Okay, he, he wrote the national anthem. Okay, that's yeah. what I thought. Right. Yep. Uh, let's see if I can find that. Well, I mean, if you're going to go back and start digging up historical racism, man, uh, you know. You go down these rabbit holes, Fred, it just gets worse. It does get worse. However, it gives context, and it shows that these people are human that had some messed up stuff going sure. on in their lives. And we can't get into this notion that American exceptionalism and Western culture is the greatest culture. It is a culture. Hey, I love that, man. Yeah, right. Why, why are we so good, and why we've got it all figured out over here, don't we? 
and we're that's what we're <laughs> right and that's what we're teaching in school so you know truth be damned you know yeah this is what we're teaching in yeah. schools now american exceptionalism and it's foolishness it's absolute foolishness but going back to um francis scott key francis scott key francis scott key said uh africans in america are a distinct and inferior race of people which all experience proves to be the greatest evil that afflicts a community. Oof. That is your writer of... I didn't know that one, man. Yes. Damn. Yeah. So we got to come up with a new national anthem, guys. So, <laughs> so let, let, that's part of the context, right? So War of 1812. Uh, British are back at the Americans again. I think this is when the White House actually gets raised, it gets burned. Um. And that's where the inspiration came from for Star Spangled Banner. Okay. Not very many people know about the third verse in the Star Spangled Banner. Oh, there's a third verse? Absolutely. I think I think oh. there's even a fourth. Are you gonna sing it? Are you gonna Andy, you need to put some music on? That that would be a hard no. <laughs> <laughs> so in the third verse, and I, I won't take the time to pull it up and read it to you, I'll paraphrase. He basically celebrates the killing of slaves that had joined forces with the British to help fight for their freedom. And it goes on to talk about, you know, the slaves underfoot trod and all these kind of things. And I, I can't remember. I can pull it up um, here shortly if you like. And how did I not know about this? So that's the historical context. Yeah. That this, that all this stuff happens. And so, you know, Americans have this skewed view of themselves, of this greatness mm-hmm. that's built on lies. Is it an ego? You know, it's just so far from the truth. The more I dig, like I was saying the rabbit holes earlier, that the more entrenched the whole country was of racism. And and that is not just the South. I don't want to give the North a pass at all. You know, um, uh, Martin Luther King even um, was quoted as saying he was as scared, if not more scared, of the people in Chicago than he was of anybody he'd ever seen in the South. Yes. Uh, so, it, you know, but yeah, you're, you're, is this ideology um, that we are the, the greatest and the, you know, we're patriots. And um, so it, it's this uh, incessant idea that we're, we're, perfect yes and that you deserve to be on top Mm -hmm. Uh, and what's starting to run rampant now is this notion of of the replacement theory you know by the year 2050 the the united states is going to be predominantly brown oh i heard it was like 20 yeah right yeah 2050 2040 something yeah Yeah. somewhere in there the united states is going to be brown yeah so you are going to start seeing the fear Right. Kick in. You know, to, to quote Public Enemy's uh, album from the 90s, Fear of a Black Planet. Mm. You know, here you have what's considered the greatest country in the world to be dominated by brown people. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. that's... So in, in, in another book that we read together, whites have already lost the majority voting uh, population. Is that correct? Um I can't remember. You've got me on that one. Yeah, yeah. We um the end of white Christian America. Okay. Yeah, it was something like I think in like 2012 or something like was the last year where um, white evangelicals. Yes, I do remember that. 
yeah. um, held the majority vote in the yes. United States. So, you know, that's so there's less of those types of white people that are out there voting. Um, it's a, it's also a group that is aging. Um, yes. So we're, we're going to see a major shift in this country uh, of um, minorities having a bigger voice. But it's going to take some work for that voice to be oh, heard. Well, you, yeah, you know the Republicans aren't going to lay down on that one. Exactly. So that's why you're seeing all the voter suppression laws yes. start to take place. And that's why you've been seeing gerrymandering happening for years yeah. now. I want to stop there, correct myself, and provide some more context when I'm talking about America has long been white and Protestant. Just looking back at the 50s, which was considered the golden age of white Christian America, it's a time before civil rights and before the fight for equality. And when America really identified with the white Christian patriarchal family, which, you know, had the gender norms. And Protestants really held the highest offices as well. It wasn't until JFK did we have a president to break that trend. And it was in 2010 was the first year in history the U.S. Supreme Court had no Protestants serving. And in its 225-year history, only 12 Catholics and 8 Jews have served, and some of those are currently serving. 2008 was the last year in which Protestants as a whole, not just whites, represented a majority in the country. And this is really due to whites leaving the faith. In 1993, 51% of Americans identified as white Protestants. Yet in 2014, only 32% of Americans identified as white and Protestant. The Hispanic Protestant population has grown, while the black Protestant population has really stayed steady. Still, there's a majority in some states such as South Dakota, Kentucky, West Virginia, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Alabama. In a 2015 American Values survey done by the Public Religion Research Institute asked, since 1950, American culture and way of life has mostly changed for the better or mostly changed for the worse. 60% of blacks believe that things have mostly changed for the better. While 72% of white evangelical Protestants believe things are mostly worse. In another study done by PRRI, they asked, are the recent killings by police part of a broader pattern? While 74% of blacks believe that it is, only 29% of white evangelical Protestants believe that it, police killings are part of a bigger problem. But things are changing, not just in religion, but also race. In 2014, in elementary schools, whites are no longer the majority. And by 2045, as adults, whites will dip below 50% of the population for the first time ever. Let's talk about some voter suppression, because to sure. me, I mean, this stuff, it, it's just so blatant that that it it, it hurts our democracy. You know, it, it's, it's hurting... Um, less people turn out to vote when they add these laws. Um, to me, that's you know shrinking the size of of our electoral vote. So, you know that that's the opposite of um, a free uh, country of a democracy. You know, um, so how do you think, or why do you think these bills are are just being passed? You know, I, I know Florida, Tennessee; these are Republican held state legislatures. So. What chance do does anybody even have of stopping these people? That's a good question. And I honestly don't have an answer for you. When you have these Republican or red bastions, you know, throughout the Southeast, and then you have these blue dots in these sea of red, yeah, they have some influence over local, you know, policies and the way things are run, but 
as far as state laws in the state legislature, you have rural people that are voting who may not have a black family in their town or may not have an LGBT person that they know of, you know, in right. their community. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So they're making, they're making laws for something that they don't know anything about. Right. Right. Or that they're, they're scared of th this could happen. This so could happen. You know, because uh, for example, Voter ID fraud is um, 0. 0.0006 percent. Uh, um, has it ever happened in in, in the last? Uh, I think from 2000 to 2014 or something. I can't remember what that study was, but it's it's non-existent. But here we are passing stronger voter ID laws. It, and so what you have, like you mentioned, that uh, conservative base dying out. You have uh, people that are fighting it's truly and i hate to use this phrase it's truly a culture war yeah and they're spinning up all these narratives to scare people into voting a certain way and they know what the truth is and you have very impressionable people that are believing this stuff they live on facebook they believe everything they see on tv and on facebook is true depending on who it's coming from and they vote along those lines mm-hmm and it goes back to our education system. That's one thing my mother has always said. She was like, she always says, son, what you're seeing is our education system failing us. And so back to what I said earlier, you have people covering up the truth with lies. The erasure is forgotten. And then you have people with agendas coming in, creating these new narratives that tickle our ears. Yep. And so people are buying into it hook, line, and sinker. Um, you started seeing it with Obama. It really came into play when he was elected president. I'll never forget telling my mother, I was so excited. Um, my grandfather never got to, uh, see him become president, um, cause he had passed on by then, but you know, they will always work and, you know, to push the vote out and work the polls as they would say. And, um, after he was elected, I told my mother, I said, you're going to start learning some things about some people that you really wish you didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as he was elected, what did you see pop up? The Tea Party. Right. And then you started hearing the phrase, well, we got to take our country back. Back from who? You never lost it. You know, you even have blacks that complain against Obama that he didn't do enough for the black community. Sure. Um. And then as that went along, that gave rise to Trump and make America great again. Mm -hmm. And I've always wanted somebody to answer the question for me. At what point in time was it great? Please define that for me. And let's have a deep conversation about that period in time. The 1950s. Uh, you know, yeah. Absolutely. The 1950s when white people did whatever the hell they wanted to do and discrimination was the flavor of the month. Right. Whites got to... Uh, live in neighborhoods protected by covenants that forbade blacks from moving in. Uh, we suffered from redlining, not being able to get loans, not even be able to take advantage of the new deal. You know, I heard an argument one time that, that they're, they're possibly remembering back to a time when it was safe to walk down the street. Um, and, and that made a lot of sense to me. I'm like, well, yeah, cause crime. Yeah. But as I did some more research, I'm, I researched about the, um, the unfortunate rapes of black women prior to the uh, Rosa Parks event. And that's really what led up that there was this, 
Um, one example was two police officers picked up uh, a young black woman and, and raped her and then dropped her off. Um, and then of course the police were never, um, in trouble. They never get And Rosa Parks actually went and was investigating some of these, uh, these rapes where, um, so it, it wasn't safe back then for young black women to walk down the street because they could be accosted by, you know, multiple white people and, and, and be gang raped. It was not safe for blacks in general. I mean, lynchings were a real thing. In fact, uh, CNN just recently did a story on Michael Donald. I don't know if you saw that special. Mm -mm. Um, if you have a chance, go back and watch it. It's about Michael Donald. Um, and this happened in the 1980s in Mobile, Alabama. And it happened probably about three miles away from my grandmother's house. And I was alive. I was a child. And the Klan... Uh, wanted to send a statement. There was some trial that they were upset about that didn't go the way they wanted it to go. So they wanted to send a statement and they grabbed this young black man and they lynched him. They hung him from a tree in Mobile. And I remember that. I will never forget that. Um, it was a widely known case. His mother bankrupted the Klan. She sued them hmm. and ended up bankrupting them. Of course, they're still around now. Sure, but, yeah. Um, but it's an amazing story. Yeah. It's, it's real sad. Um, but, you know, you see these white aggressions whenever there's the perception that blacks have done some injustice, you know, to whites. There's this over response. And I, 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 I wrestle with why there's such an over response to just the request for black equality. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's, that's what all this boils down to, Fred, is, yeah. is black equality. I, you know, I don't think that's asking for too much. No. And to me, it's blatant. Um, I mean, this, you, you mentioned a couple stats. Gosh, Fred, we could go all day. Sure. I mean, you know, family wealth. Um, uh, you got... Prison um, rates, criminality rates, um, of course, police brutality. I mean, you know, it just goes on and on. Um, man, I, I, Fred, this has been an amazing time, but I, I do have some silly questions that I want to ask you. And this, this is just going to be like a speed, a speed round. Okay. And I'm just going to ask you a question. You have three seconds to answer the question and then I'm going to move to the next question because seconds. you're you're not going to need more than 3 seconds. There's not really worth your time probably, okay? But the 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 um the title of these questions are the topic of these questions are questions white people have when talking about racism, okay? All right. Our first question is what about Obama? My answer is what about Obama? All right, question 2. I've never owned slaves. That is so short-sighted and insensitive. I, I mean, how do you... <laughs> Number three, I'm friends with a black guy. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> and number four, I'm not racist. Yes, you are. <laughs> if you have to tell me you, you're not, you are. <laughs> Man, I wanted to try to lighten things up there at the end, but um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we wrap it up? No, I, I've definitely enjoyed the dialogue, and thank you for getting me out of my shell because this is not something that I just openly do and just give my opinions on things. So 
thank you for creating a safe space for us to have a hard conversation and, you know, get on each other's nerves and irritate <laughs> each other. And, you know, just thanks. Yeah, man. Thank you. you. And we'll, we'll do it again. Absolutely. You're doing a good thing. I'm proud of you. Hey, thanks, Fred. Yeah. All right, buddy. I want to thank our guest today, Fred, for sharing his story. I want to thank you, the listener, for being open-minded. I want to thank my wife, Lisa, for always pushing me to do this podcast. I want to thank Andy Skibb, my producer and editor, for making me sound a heck of a lot cooler than I am. You can follow along on Instagram at the white privilege guy, and don't forget to check out the white privilege guy.com for more info on where you can listen to this podcast.